giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hey everybody, this is Ben Orenstein from ThoughtBot, and we are broadcasting to you live from the smallest room in the office, because it's the quietest. Uh, I'm sitting here with Dan Powell, and uh, we're going to be talking about Dan a bit today and what he's into. And Dan, could you summarize for us in like 15 seconds what you do for a living? <laughs> sure. So uh, I'm a, a, a consulting CTO, an interim CTO for a lot of startups, as well as a, a consulting chief architect for a lot of groups that just... Uh, need some help either on the development management or software architecture front and come in and try to help solve problems. So you're sort of a professional CTO for hire mercenary? Exactly. How do you like that? Uh, it's fun. You get to work with a lot of new groups and, and fun projects and move around. And for people like myself, they get bored easily. It's always a good opportunity to uh, jettison out of one project as soon as you find another good thing to work on. Right. Is that why you haven't settled down with some nice company and just sort of set roots down? Yeah, it is. I, I think I realized that after the first few years of my career, I you know get the itch about one year in. It's okay. like, yeah, okay, it's time to look somewhere else. So I said, maybe consulting's for me. Maybe yeah. that so one year is your ideal relationship length then, would you say? It is, yeah. It, it's, it's the right amount of time to solve pretty much any reasonable problem. Hmm. If you come in and you haven't fixed whatever was broken, whether that's uh, software-wise or, or process, architecture, or people, um, in a year, you've probably got a more deep-rooted problem that you can't solve that, that gets down to the, sort of the company's core. Um, other than that, you're just, you start solving problems serially, and you're not then really helping the client to self-sustain. Right? It's, it's one thing to sort of need some help, you know, to, to call the tip line once and get somebody to come in and sort of help you get going. But uh, if you still need that level of help after a year, then I didn't solve the real problem, and maybe right. it can't be solved. Right. It's like more systemic at that exactly. point. Exactly. Hmm. So then, uh, what does a typical week look like? Hmm. Typical week um, starts Sunday morning and ends Saturday night. It's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's a it's a seven day week, uh, you know, eighty ninety hour week kind of a kind of a thing, which I love. Uh, you know, really feed on that energy. So, um, but it's 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 great. We tend to have um, sort of one primary client at a time. That is, you know, I'd say the sixty seventy percent focus of of what I do that week. Um, we've got you know two or three clients in sort of supporter maintenance that you know reach out to us on a, you know it could be a daily basis could be a weekly basis checkpoint how are we doing are we still on track or you know hey we need to do some war rooming for a couple of days kind of thing mm. um, so it's you know the day is is wake up clear the decks almost always have uh, some development team in in India or the UK or you know somewhere well east of here that needs to be touched at you know six or seven a.m. and make sure that they're being productive. Um, make sure that everything's rolling so that when you know the the eastern U.S. group, which is where we focus most, wakes up, everything is is you know on the skids right. So you know get that stuff out of the way and then take a shower. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, uh, so our there is time to bathe in your work week. There is uh, some days not time to dress, but you can at least always okay. find time to bathe. That's good. Um, it is. It is um, MVP of like personal hygiene, <laughs> right? Um, so you know, we're a small shop. It's uh, myself and my partner. We founded the uh, Abacus seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, and then we use a stable of contractors and consultants, sort of as skills are needed for different things. So we don't have an office, which is great, um, particularly for the days that dressing doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does make it easy to sort of fit in hygiene and, and eating where needed. Right. Hmm. So what is your least favorite part? Ooh, billing. Billing. Yeah, I'm, I, I dislike... Um, I, I'm bad at writing things down, I guess is really what it comes down to. Hmm. Um, 
you know, if you ask me to repeat my answer to the last three questions that we just talked about, I have no idea what I said. Uh-huh. Um, I very much sort of, you know, respond and live in the moment, and it's very challenging for me to sort of try to look back on, okay, what did we do? Um, to the point that uh, we, we, we don't do uh, hourly projects anymore. Mm-hmm. I basically have said, if, if you want me to punch a time clock, I don't want your work. Um, and that's just, that's brought my stress level down a lot because, mm. y- you know, you, you find that you're able to better deal with whatever the problem is without worrying about, um, oh, we're at four hours. Eh, the problem isn't solved, but that's your problem. Yeah. Um, and sort of it, it makes it, I think it enables us to better solve the problem for the client, but it also, I think, gives a better um, quality of life, at least for myself, not having to worry so much about a ticking clock and are we under or over on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, having to look back at the end of the month and put the invoices together and try to remember who we did what for whom and when, uh, it's not my best not my favorite part. Anyway. So, so do you typically keep it at sort of higher level then? Yeah. I spend a week on this thing and that's what happened. Yeah, we tend to do um, sort of monthly, you know, as needed projects. And we'll, we'll sort of couch that around, you know, this is going to be a 10 to 30 hour a week kind of thing, or this will be a five to 10 hour a week thing. And, and we'll provide high level justification points of sort of what we did uh, in that week or in that month. But definitely try to do um, high level project billing, you know, month to month. Here are the things that we're going to be doing you know, as needed. If something comes up and it's not on the list, that shouldn't be an impediment to solving the problem. Hmm. That makes sense. So do you have any code in the current Linux kernel? <laughs> that's, uh, if I do, that's probably a scary thing. I ask this question <laughs> of all the podcast guests. So that's oh, okay. my, this is my standard. Uh, I, I may. Uh-huh. Um, I did a bunch of work back, uh, oh God, this would have been uh, late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. around the uh, alpha uh, processor uh, and the Linux support for that. Uh, it was a Back when uh, digital equipment was a thing. <laughs> yes, my uh, one of my first computers was a nice uh, Alpha, but um, that got me addicted there. I, I I started out. It was actually when I went to college. I I bought a a nice Dell. You know, I don't know. It was like a P Pro Dual Proc 200 megahertz, and it was no end of problems. Dell must have sent me six different sets of replacement parts over the first three months, and I was like, this is a complete piece of crap. Mm. Threw it out and went to. There was a company out of New Jersey called Microway that had a product called the Alpha Screamer. And, you know, with a name like that, you just got to buy one. Absolutely. So it was a, a 566 megahertz, um, what was it, 3 meg of L3 cache. Uh, it was a Screamer. It was a beautiful, beautiful machine. But um, at the time, you know, 64-bit software, you know, didn't really work very well uh, outside of, of scientific and, and other applications like that. So having an Alpha as your, as your desktop, was challenging. You know, it, it ran Windows NT very poorly. Um, they had this this very interesting uh, emulation layer where uh, the emulator, the x86 emulator, would actually sort of translate the bytecode as it was running and create an alpha version of the bytecode. So the more times you ran the application that you were running, it got better because it created better uh, translated bytecode so that you ended up with basically a native alpha application. Huh. But uh, yeah, so I was in a um, you know a group at uh, I went to school at NC State, so there was a group there called CAT. It uh, was a, a residence uh, hall program similar to the MIT Athena program um, here in Boston uh, or Cambridge, I guess. Um, Basically, putting a bunch of nerds in the same yeah. building. It's like, you know, nobody else wants to live with these guys, right. so let's make them live with themselves. Let's contain the stench in one area. <laughs> it was interesting that there was there were four suites of people, and one of them was female. So I was, I was a little surprised that they were able to get 25% female yeah. participation, but mm-hmm. um, that was good. Um, 
So yeah, so I had a, uh, an alpha, got into Linux. Um, Linux stuff didn't really work necessarily as well as one might hope. So uh, you know, dug in and tried to help out and got some good work done. Cool. So, so you may actually have code in there. So I may. If someone somewhere is still running alphas, <laughs> they might be using some code you wrote. That would be the challenge. Oh, uh, man. I still do have one alpha running at home. Um, it sat in the trunk of my car for a couple of years. It was uh, an old... Uh, um, it was an old deck Multia, which was their um, thin client uh, device. It was designed to be just a little bit smarter than an X terminal, but mm-hmm. not really a personal computer. But it, it had the processor was just fast enough that if you sort of booted single user mode and only started MPEG one two three, you could play you know uh, MP three files without skipping or, or, or buffering or anything. Mm-hmm. So I Man. mounted that in the trunk of the car with an AC inverter okay. that kicked on whenever the power turned on. I mounted a ten key. Um, uh, on the the console between the the front seats, so I could navigate the songs with the you know one to go forward, three to go back, kind of a thing. All right, and yeah. then you cruise the streets of Boston. And that was Salt Lake of, City at the time. Okay, yeah, <laughs> and showed people your your MP3 player. That's awesome. So you've been in the sort of programming game for a long time, to the point where I imagine you've sort of seen trends come and go, and languages come and go, and with that perspective. How does that change your, your outlook on things? It, it, it definitely reminds you that nothing is the next big thing because chances are by the time you think it's the next big thing, it's already about to be replaced. Mm. Um, and that's especially challenging to help my clients understand because um, you know, a lot of them are you know, first-time, second-time entrepreneurs. You know, they you know, were you know, an executive at a large company. They got an idea while they were there. They sort of got their you know, big you know, bonus and said, I'm going to strike out on my own. And I just read this article in Business 2.0 that told me that you know, mobile social payment things are the way of the future. So yeah. we're going we're gonna to solve that problem. Okay, fine. Hmm. Uh, well, by the time you figured that out and you started a business and you come out with your solution, you're probably already two years late. So that doesn't mean don't do it, but it means never tie yourself to any thing, particularly any solution. Um, Technologically? The, yeah. The problems, the problems don't go away. The basic things that we want to do as people uh, with technology don't change because they're the things that we want to do as people. And we look at technology as a way to do them better, more efficiently, more lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the things like, you know, we want to bank better, right? We want to be able to manage our money more easily with better visibility or transparency, with better returns, um, in a convenient way. That doesn't change. You know, the internet allowed us to do that from our pajamas at home. Um, you know, mobile cellular data plans have allowed us to do that from our phone, wherever we are. We can check that. So that's an example of sort of technology has improved doing what we've always done, which is, you know, manage our money through bankers, right? We've done that for, you know, forever. Yeah. Um, you know, the same is true in, in, in healthcare, right? The basic way that doctors treat patients in an analytic diagnostic way has not changed, right? You present, the doctor looks at you, there's an analysis, okay, you're running a fever, you've got a high blood pressure, the doctor sort of consults his mental memory and says, oh, you must have, you know, this disease and this is the appropriate treatment plan. You know, technology helps us do that better. It helps us measure your temperature more effectively or less invasively. Mm-hmm. It uh, gives us a system that will analyze those symptoms and more quickly or, or effectively determine you know, what was probably the problem, right? Um, it gives us the ability to better mine data uh, across populations. You know, historically, we were stuck with doctors referencing their own personal history of uh, last time I saw these symptoms, it ended up being this thing, and this treatment seemed to be the most successful. 
they'd share that in journals and conferences. Well, now we have you know, giant databases in the sky of every you know, patient chart from huge medical organizations or entire states of data mm. that we can do analytics on and really find those patterns and, and best treatment plans. So the basic pattern is sort of recognize that there are a number of things that we always want to do and that t- technology can make us let, let's do them a bit better and sort of evolve on those processes. Yeah. And, you know, from a business standpoint, that's the easiest thing to sell. Right. right. It's like you, this, but a bit better. Exactly. You don't have to convince someone of the value proposition of what you're trying to do. Right. You just have to you know, show them that, hey, I can do it better. I can do it cheaper. So I can you're, do it faster. you're more skeptical of sort of new business model type companies. It's, it's rare that you come across something truly new under the sun. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they don't happen, but they're rare. And in the land of betting people, you, know, you will do better if you just refine something yeah. than if you try to create something entirely new. Makes sense. And, and so strictly in, in the technology world, then, I imagine you, having seen a lot of different ones come and go, you're sort of less enamored with each individual sure. way I mean, of doing you know, For how long did we hear the, the C++ people tell the Java people, oh, that's never going to work, that's far too slow, it was designed to run on a toaster, uh, that's the worst way in the world to write software. Mm. Um, you, know, you think back even farther than that, you, know, you had the, the curmudgeons in C++ class that insisted on turning in all of their assignments in C because no one would ever need templates and objects and everything else. And yeah, so that you know, Java finally became fast enough, or at least the hardware was, fa- was fast enough that the difference was negligible and the performance boost of, of development was worth it. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the same thing now with interpreted languages, right? So now Ruby is the new hotness. So it's, oh, my God, we've got to do everything in Ruby. And, yeah. you know, anybody that's still compiling their software is just stupid. And hmm. why do you want to sit there and wait 10 minutes for your Eclipse IDE to boot up? And, you know, how do you manage these JAR files? And, well, is that really any different than the DLL files that we looked down on for years as Java developers? Hmm. So, you know, something will, will replace, you know, Ruby as the new hotness, Yep. You know, don't get attached to it. It's it's embrace the opportunity to do something better. Mm-hmm. You know, we started writing Java, and it was oh my god, this is so much easier than than writing C plus plus for everything or PHP or Perl mm-hmm. or whatever you were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, as we adopted Ruby, it was the same thing. Oh look, we we can do the same thing. Very few things that you can do in Ruby that you couldn't do in Java or vice versa for that matter. But again, it's a do it better. It's a it was a uh, productivity. Improvement, I think, is the main reason that each of those changes have been successful. Mm. Um, it, again, it wasn't that anything did anything better. It was, um, A, it became trendy, which, which never hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and B, it was we can get more features written by fewer people faster. And at the end of the day, every business is about making money, not writing code. So mm. the, the right. less that they have to put into solving their business need, the better. So as someone that is sort of a CTO for hire, you definitely need to keep up on the latest and greatest, I would think. So mm-hmm. you, can, you can at least fake that you know what you're talking about <laughs> when the, the person that read about it in Business 2.0 mentions exactly. it. So how do, you, how do you stay on top of things? Mm. Well, a lot of that is, again, the benefit of uh, consulting, of, of really changing um, you know, my environs very you know, frequently is mm-hmm. that allows me to, to, to sort of sow the seeds, Johnny Appleseed style, um, that are coming out of research groups um, in any area, right? In, in any group of, you put 25 people together in a development team and you've got, you know, four or five of them that are screwing around on weekends with, you know, little toy projects or, hey, this might be better. Um, now sort of introduce somebody that can sort of pick and choose and take those little learnings that may not even have been helpful for client A, but could then, hey, that might have a good application for this other client. Mm. Um, and it sort of allows me to share that learning that's happening uh, across all of my clients. Um, mm, that makes sense. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning. So you, you um, were the CTO for a former client of ours. And I remember a story from one of our, the, the team people that were working with you that 
sort of in the beginning, we thought you were just sort of the manager, the programmer, CTO, and you were sort of running the project and making th- making sure things were going well and reporting back to the board and all that. And then one day, a pull request came in on GitHub for like you <laughs> adding some feature, and like the code was good, and like everyone was like, "Oh my god!" and totally blown away. So I, mean, I, I imagine there's this. There can't be a substitute for that, right? Like n- being able to code yourself when you're managing developers. Ab- absolutely. You know, the, the the fastest way to sort of lose the perspective of solving the tactical problem and and knowing how software needs to be built. It, you know, as languages change, techniques change, process changes. And anytime you have a process architect in a vacuum, right, you get the, the man on the mountain that comes down with the tablets and said, I just went to a conference on Kanban, and this looks great. Um, you know, if you're not in there writing code, you don't have any idea how that's really going to work and, mm-hmm. and how to do that. It's, um, you know, it's important. Um, it's, and it's also fun. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, selfishly, I enjoy you know, taking a problem, digging in, and solving it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, decreasingly, do I solve problems through code? It's more you know people, but um, it is still enjoyable to you know pull out them and and you know solve some actual problems on the ground. Um, you know, it, it's it's good. It's a good way to keep a temper on on estimates. On you oh, know, sure. is the complexity really where it needs to be? Um, it's challenging sometimes because I do change teams so frequently. Um, you know, normally you've got sort of somebody that you know that you can trust. You can say, oh, okay, Joe says that this code is being done right, and I've worked with Joe now for three years, and I trust that, you know, okay, fine, right? But, um, you know, when you come into a, a new code base um, that you're, that you're going to be working in, the fastest way to sort of understand where the problems really might lie is, well, let's add a feature and see how difficult that process is as compared to sort of how difficult it seems like it should be. Totally. And that'll help you sort of find where those some hot spots. Yeah, I was at a great talk um, at um, uh, Scotland RubyConf, Scottish RubyConf, and Dave Thomas gave a talk. And he says that there's only one metric that's worth considering for software or for code, and that's how easy is it to change. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, because everything does change, right? Whatever problem you solved yesterday is no longer the problem that you need to be solving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you don't continue to evolve your product, your customers will find, you know, go somewhere that is. Right. Um, so if you've got this big monolithic you know, thing that you can't evolve, it doesn't matter if you were you know, the best at whatever it was that you did. You've got to keep it going. And mm. so you know, that, that is really the key to keeping any successful business successful. Um, and it's easy to lose sight of that when you get started, right? Because it's, it's easy to get into that mode of just ship something. Um, but then you realize, great, so we got to the flag first, but now we can't manage to strap on our skis and get to the next flag. And somebody else just said, oh, hey, look, they're doing something fun. We could do that. Okay, fine. And it's always faster to copy something than to invent something. Mm. So it may have taken you nine months to get your 1.0, but then you've got this big ball of mud that you can't do anything with. So it's taking – you're struggling trying to get to version two. The next guy can just sort of clone what you did in, in three months, and he's off to the races if he did it right. Mm. So you've got to make sure that you've created you, – you've enabled yourself to continue to succeed – not just focused on your immediate needs and short-term goals. Hmm. Do, you have, do you have any um, principles that you follow to try to write code in that fashion that makes it easier to change later? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're nothing new. It's, it's the standard you know, enterprise design patterns that have been written about and, and well-documented for you know, probably 20 years now. It's, mm-hmm. So um, no secret sauce? <laughs> no secret sauce there. It's, um, you know, one of the things that I find, you know, again, just an early metric that I run into when I sort of sit down and start working with a new team is, you know, use some basic terms, right? Sort of discover the, the, the glossary or vocabulary of the team. And everyone should have a com- everyone in software should have sort of a common vocabulary around basic 
enterprise patterns, hmm. right? If you say singleton or you say factory and somebody doesn't know what you're talking about, you've got a problem, mm-hmm. right? And then you can sort of keep, keep tweaking that and keep sort of, you know, next round, next round, right, until you, you sort of discover the it's – a, it's a very fast way to, to quickly measure the competence of a team mm. is by how well do they understand these very standard – I'm not talking the esoteric stuff, but, mm-hmm. you know, decorators, present. I mean, these are things that everyone should – understand, if not by the word, then at least by what they do and how they're used. And, totally. and making sure that, that those basic principles are being followed is, is key. Um, you know, test-driven development, you know, okay, that's, you know, the new, you know, golden goose for how to make sure that you're building software that can, can be changed and tweaked over time. And I think it has, it has given us a lot. Um, I don't think it's the, the end-all be-all that, that we'd like it to be. I think especially with um, sort of what I see as the over prevalence of mocks and stubs, I think you've ended up, you know, it's not difficult to end up creating a more complex system hmm. that it then becomes the hard part to tweak and, and, and manage and, and evolve. But, um, you know, that is definitely, you know, one of the more recent um, ways to improve making sure that your software is is evolvable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we're big fans of that here. But it's, it's funny, you say that you think there's TDD is not the end-all, be-all. And the more I learn, and it seems like the more that anyone learns in general, the more they realize there is no end-all, be-all. Like, this is a nice technique, and it has these benefits, and it has these potential drawbacks, but there's there's no silver bullet. Right. Yeah. And I th- it's, it, to me, it's, it's similar to, you know, for the longest time, we saw Scrum or Agile in general as the solution to our software delivery problems, right? Suddenly we have this, this, this development model that's going to allow us to turn on a dime to, to you know, very quickly change our priorities and figure out what we need to be doing and adapt to a changing business climate. Um, but it gave us absolutely no visibility into our long-term development plan, mm-hmm. right? You know, you've got a team that's happy to tell you what they're 90% confident they'll get done next week, but ask them, you know, when this other feature that's, you know, three pages down the backlog is going to get delivered, and you'll get a, maybe this year, maybe next, mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't work, right? So, again, it's, it's, it's using the right tools where they're needed, um, and technology and process are both common in that way, mm-hmm. and then recognizing that, you know, the old ways aren't necessarily bad just because there's a new shiny way to do it today. That is anathema to the Ruby world. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's a world, you know, we, we had the same, uh, a lot of sort of the, the Ruby development that I see today, or the Rails development, I should say, um, more, very recently, uh, reminds me a lot of, of PHP back in, what was this, late 90s, Those I guess. Some right? serious fighting words in this office. <laughs> you better be yeah, careful. But, but suddenly it was anybody could, could connect a MySQL database to a web page and generate some HTML. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was a programmer. Mm-hmm. And it was, you don't need those C++ guys that, you know, cost you a fortune to do this. You know, it was PHP my this and PHP my that, and here's your website. And, you know, it's, you know we, we've run into a similar... Um, problem or opportunity, I suppose, um, in the Rails community, where we just we have this this glut now of not particularly great developers um, that need help to get to the next level, yeah. and it's it, it's challenging sometimes to help them do that um, because they don't necessarily have the support within their organization to do so, right? Absolutely. Uh, business wraps onto, oh, my God, you just scaffolded that together overnight. You're our new lead programmer, right? right. And, and that's not helpful. 
Mm. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. In some ways, the fact that Rails empowers you to do a lot with with a little bit of skill is, can almost be damaging. Exactly. When, when it gets too complicated. Exactly. And it's it's created this. You know, then people sort of get over their skis a little bit, and they're like, "Oh my God, I'm what do I do? What do I do?" And and then you get cargo culting, right? So then you get, "Oh well, I just read this book that said RSpec is great. So right. there goes all my test unit. Let's go RSpec." And you know, "Oh my God, I've got to be doing TDD everywhere, every time, and I've got to mock this that, and the other." And it's you know, there lacks comprehension yeah. when you just sort of take people and throw them in the deep end. You learn to swim. Throw somebody in the deep end of the pool, they learn to swim. What do they learn to do? They learn to doggy paddle. Right. You don't learn to breaststroke when you're thrown in the deep end. Mm. Um, so it's, it's important when, you're, when you have an organization that has a bunch of doggy paddlers, right? That's, you know, how many groups have you worked with that come in and they've got, you know, we just hired these five guys that are fresh out of MIT, and they're super smart, and they're excited, and they're going to live and sleep under their desks, and we're going to go ship this thing overnight. And it's like, well, okay. We're going to ship something, and then we're going to hit the delete button on the whole thing and start over because that's about what we're going to have value. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's important, um, and, I, and I don't mean to undermine the value of, of these frameworks that have allowed us to do so much so quickly and have really lowered the, the bar, lowered the, the barrier of entry uh, for developers. I agree. It should not take 10 years of education to write a simple application to do not much. Um, but it is important to recognize uh, when hard problems need to be solved with good solutions mm. um, and then how to mature um, people into that, that ability, right? It's, you know, nor do I – I don't like the idea of separating A players and B players. You sort of – you hear that, that a lot as well. This guy's he'll always just be good enough to write support tools or he'll always just be good – you know, well, that's – a lot of times it's because he, ju- he sort of just learned enough to show a little bit of promise um, – but didn't learn, you know, all the fancy words and methods that, you know, the real team learned. Um, and so he just sort of gets left behind. So mm-hmm. uh, fostering that education, helping people to continue learning. Um, you know, the Rails community has a, a, a great history of conferences. Um, that was something that really helped the Java industry as well, um, is, is that easy ability to share knowledge and learn and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of information online in terms of screencasts and books is you know, unprecedented, really, um, how quickly it is to really find good knowledge. Uh, it can be a little challenging sometimes to sift out the bad advice, but again, that's where uh, a good engineer needs to sort of put on their, their thinking cap and say, does this make sense or is it just, you know, the new hotness? Yeah, it's, it's interesting the place where the, the Rails world is right now because it feels like demand has greatly outstripped supply and that pressure is kind of bringing new developers into the market. Absolutely. Like, well, there's a, there's a gold rush going on. There's a ton of work. There's way more work than there are developers. So, I mean, everyone's hiring. I took a picture of the – I was at RailsConf this year. I took a picture of the job boards because yeah. there's, like, four whiteboards <laughs> just crammed full of tiny writing with, like, job openings. And so the, with, this, with this force pulling in, you end up with these people that are much less experienced. Right. Like, the average Rails programmer is probably, like, nine months of experience or something now. Absolutely. Um, and it's it's – like you said, it's, it's, is it an opportunity or is it a problem? <laughs> it's an opportunity kind of for people like us, right, yeah. with, with more experience and the ability to kind of parachute in and, and maybe take over if, if something has gone wrong. Um, but it's, it's definitely a challenge. And it's something I actually wonder about, too, is is it bad that there's so much demand for Rails developers and not as much supply? Because our company is going to say, well, we can't hire anybody to get this done. Therefore, screw Rails. We'll do something else. So, you know, selfishly for... Okay, so that's actually I'll, – I'll back up and address that point. I have a client that just did that. Okay. They spent six months trying to hire Rails developers. They built their, their prototype. They had a product that they were out raising capital on. Uh, it, it was done. It was a 1.0 ready to go to market, hmm. um, built in Rails. 
and it was built by you know two or three guys and a designer, uh, and it worked. And they spent six months trying to hire Rails developers and just could not. Um, so Rails developers, because of that supply problem, have such a prima donna complex right now, right? It's you know, oh, me <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, you you can't call them, you can't approach them. They're you know you know too good for gold, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know they want obscene amounts of money. They want you know. 700 thread, pound sh- thread count sheets on their desk chairs. You know, it's, it's just stupid, right? It's an attitude that you, you – so you do bring these people into a company, and everybody immediately hates them because they're walking around like God's gift to humanity, and they're the ones that are going to save this company, and mm. they're the vaunted Rails developers that the company just spent you know, six months and you know, God knows how much on recruiters to bring in. But anyway, so this client couldn't hire enough, literally could not, had – you know, great funding, unlimited budget, basically, um, mm-hmm. and just could not find people. Huh. Um, spent, spent about six months looking for people, missed their launch window as a result, scrapped the entire code base, hired a bunch of Java developers, and shipped it again. Wow. So, but, I mean, isn't that, isn't that a, uh, a pricing problem? It is. Well, because of that supply-demand, right, you know, right. In, in this free market, um, yeah. you know, it's, you know the, the developers you know, want a lot of money. It's... The, the, the problem is not just pricing in compensation, though. It's we've also created this, and again, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but we've really emphasized this quality of life. There's this real movement going around software right now. You know, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, you were a software engineer at a startup. You had no life. Right. Right? It was you know, sleep under your desk. It was you know, drink Red Bull all day. It was frozen taquitos at midnight for dinner. You know, that was your life, and it was, you know, hope you IPO and you're going to make some money. Yeah, right. Nobody ever made, nobody ever got rich doing that, but that was the dream. And to a certain extent, we've woken up to that as, as developers. And so it's, it's, it's people, Rails developers are looking as much for quality of life or looking for the company, the product to solve um, as, as compensation uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, of cash or equity. So it's, it's hard when you don't necessarily have a really sexy product Hmm. to find good engineers on the Rails front because they all want to be solving what they see as the sexy problems. Right. Hmm. It's, it's, so it's not enough to have an unsexy product but a great quality of life, a nice office, nice benefits, things like that? Doesn't um, quite do it? it? It can, I think, for, the, for certain developers. Um, it's difficult in, in, in urban areas, I think, uh, maybe a little bit more so. Um, you know, if you're in Burlington, Vermont, you're in Portland, Oregon, um, you have people that, that very obviously do care about quality of life more than, than money, or else they would live in a city where they could get paid twice as much. Hmm. Um, if you're in New York, if you're in L.A., if you're in Boston, um, you know, the people uh, – the biggest draw I find when interviewing people is the problem. Is, is, is the team in the problem? Am I going to be working with a good group of people that I'm going to learn from, and am I going to be working on a product that I'm interested in that has interesting problems to solve? Uh, it's very challenging in Boston in particular because we have so many MIT startups, right? It's, you know, the Media Lab spun off this, and, you know, Neuro spun off that, and, you know, there's, there's so many really cool places. You know, you could be working on, you know, underwater robots. You could be working on, you know, you know machine learning. You, could, you know, really cool stuff. Mm. Why are you going to go work for, you know, a you know, random, you know, website building a generic consumer, yet another online recipe book? Yeah. It's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, can you throw money at the problem to a certain extent? But, you know, developers don't really have huge needs, I, I would say, monetarily. So the difference between $100,000 a year and $140,000 a year 
Um, they'd probably rather be working on an MIT startup that they think is going to make them famous and that's, you know, they're going to get a patent on and they're going to solve some cool problems. Yeah. They're still sleeping on their futon. <laughs> yeah. Is that a, is that a problem though? Like I almost, I almost like the sound of this pressure, like the boring companies can't get started. And like, that almost seems like a good thing. Maybe it, it is. In, unless you sort of realize how many companies that we need to exist are pretty boring. Are, are pretty boring. Right. Um, yeah, I, I have no idea how true it is today, but um, you know, historically, the, the joke in Boston was you know, 50% of developers work either for Fidelity or Partners, mm. neither of which were doing anything very sexy at all, but they both had huge armies of people just writing code, pages and pages of it at a time, solving not very interesting problems. Mm. Well, we, we need you know, that software to exist, right? We need to be able to go to our online banking and be able to withdraw money from our checking account. Mm. Uh, you know, are there hard problems to be solved at Bank of America? Absolutely. 95% of the developers aren't solving the hard problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do need people to solve the problems that need to be solved. Um, you know, is, is that a good solution for the problem that we talked about earlier with the, the sort of glut of undereducated? Um, you, know, uh, you know, I took a course in Dreamweaver after school. I can now be a web designer. Uh, maybe. Um, probably not because, again – they need mentorship to to learn and grow to be good developers to write code well. Yeah. Um, hmm. yeah. So, let's say that um, hypothetically, a developer has been someone who's been writing code and basically just on a team with some other people has gotten promoted into management now. Now this person is responsible for other developers, like a team lead or something, or God forbid, CTO. Um, how does the job change? What would you tell that person that they need to be doing now and thinking about and all that? It's 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 interesting to me how many people I've seen do that and then run away screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's important. And this isn't exactly what you asked, but um, I'll circle back to that. I guess okay. um, it's important when promoting from a team to a team lead or you know to a Durange or something like that. Don't just take your smartest engineer and say, "Well, he's our, our senior engineer. He's next in line for the promotion." Um, your best engineer is probably your worst manager. Maybe not your worst, but he's almost certainly not your best manager. Mm. Um, so to directly answer your question, to build on that, the, the key characteristic that you've got to learn to do a lot more of and a lot better as a, a team manager is it's a people problem now. You know, you can't, you know, you can't throw your IDE at solving the problems that are going to present. It's going to be, you know, you know, somebody on the team's complaining. Somebody else on the team has a body odor problem. Do you know how to go tell someone, honey, you really need to shower more? Mm-hmm. That's a tough problem, and it's one that, as um, uh, you know, a, a group of generally speaking socially awkward people, they're probably not very good at. Yeah. Um, so, learning how to to solve some of the sort of HR and people problems is very challenging for your average, you know, just promoted developer mm. uh, to team lead. Um, it's also, you know, learn to run cover, right? It's, you know, I, I find a lot of development teams, you know, it's easy to sort of hide behind somebody else um, when, you know, the boss comes yelling. Um, it's instead learn that it's your job to throw yourself in front and to, to run cover for your team and to be, um, to be that face and, you know, to get out of the way when credit needs to be given as well. But mm. um, it's, it's challenging um, to have to deal with money. It's challenging to have to deal with budgets and timelines, you know, it's, it's easy, um, you know, on the development side to say, it's going to take me eight hours to build this. And if that's not good enough, well, you'd be find somebody else to do it. But, you know, when, when you're the, 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 
you know, manager of this engineering group and you've got to get it done, you know, you've now need to find ways to get it done rather than just sort of fall back on, well, I don't know, the estimates say this sprint's going to take three weeks. Uh, that's no longer viable. So, mm-hmm. But I, I think the hardest thing really is um, grappling with the, the HR problems. Um, you know, good engineers, you know, even, even fairly personable ones don't have a clue how to fire somebody um, and won't. And so they'll, they'll have someone on their team that desperately needs to get gone, um, and they just can't have that awkward conversation. And it's, mm. you know, again, I think that draws back to, generally speaking, many developers are not the most uh, socially adept. Hmm. i got to imagine that everybody would have trouble firing someone, though. Like, I hope so. like a bigger problem. You should. Yeah. And so, so are, there, are there anything you can do other than just learn by doing with this, or is this just something you got to kind of go through? I think you just have to go through it, yeah. um, and uh, you know, and, and some people recognize when it's not right. You know, if if you're if you're thrust into a leadership position and you know you're trying and you're just you're not happy, um, recognize that mm-hmm. and and be happy and and don't try to force the fit because you're probably not doing a good job. You don't don't give up overnight, but you know, if you've been there for three months and it's just it's really not working, it's like, geez, I really just want to get back to writing code, or I just you know you know. You know, talk with management and find a better fit for yourself. Find someone that could do the job maybe more happily. Again, quality of life is you know <laughs> is really what's important right now. So yeah. so you know preserve that. Hmm. Is that how you feel about yourself too? You're you're interested in quality of life. I am. I am. Um, you know, people you know ask me, geez, you you work a lot. You're always working. Why you know don't you you know I'm happy. I'm working because I'm happy. I've I've chosen a, a career that allows me to do what I love doing mm-hmm. and get paid for it. Yeah. Um, what what could be better? Um, but yeah, it's you know, I had to forcibly drag my wife out of town this past weekend because she'd worked you know four weekends in a row. I you know every night, every weekend, you know she, you know okay, it's time to go, Catherine. So it's you know Friday morning, show up with train tickets. All right, pack your bags. We're leaving for the weekend. You Forced can pick vacation. this up on Sunday. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, you know it's 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 good when you've got a support structure to do that because it's so easy to get burned out in this industry. Um, you know, people, you know, people, management will take advantage of you, right? You know, it's, again, they need to ship a product. They've got commitments to their board or their investors or themselves for when they need to get this done. Um, you know, learn the mistakes that we made in the 90s that, you know, there is no, you know, gold at the end of the rainbow for the vast majority of you on the floor. So, you know, make sure that you're happy along the way. Otherwise, you're just going to end up, you know, Ten years older and unmarried and with a very bad Red Bull habit. <laughs> so how about, let's go big picture for a second. Uh, do you have any big goals for the next three years, five years, anything like that? Like what would you like to, what are your, what's your five-year plan? <laughs> um, I think shockingly doing what I'm doing. Uh-huh. Um, and that feels really weird to say. I, I can't decide if that makes me sound lazy or the luckiest guy in the world. Yeah, sounds um, lucky to me. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm doing what I want. If, if I'm doing this when I retire, not that I can imagine ever retiring, that's great. Um, you know, do I want to work at a, at a big business? You know, so what are the, the, the ways that you normally sort of move up in your career, right? You, you do you know, more executive or you do it for a bigger company, right? Those are the two axes that you can move. I hate working in a big company, right? Um, yeah, I, I won't do it again. Um, I don't want to punch a clock. I don't want to work anywhere that I need to take a, you know, an, an HR training class on how to fill out a timesheet. Um, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I get to choose my clients. You know, I get to choose who I want to work with and the projects that I want to work on. 
um, and and I, I love the the blend of of technology and and people management that that I get to do right now. I'm, I'm uh, extremely happy. Um, so you know, my three year plan, my five year plan is to to keep doing what I'm doing more successfully, to to find better ways to help my clients to be more successful hmm. uh, faster, to to try to sort of you know continue to evolve um, practices and methods. Um, as we talked about earlier, it's it's continuing to sort of build that toolkit of ways to solve problems as as new technology uh, evolves. Yeah, I'm I'm eager to see you know where is technology going to take us in the next five years, and to make sure that you know I get to be a part of that. It's it's easy to you know latch on to a technology set and 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 follow it you know back down right or to ride the wave to the top and not really realize that, and then you're halfway down the wave. And crap, it's now too late to get off because everybody else is now two years ahead of you and, and you're stuck. So yeah. it's tough to sort of keep keep on top of that wave, but it's fun. Sure. Hey, if if you're that's that's a good answer. <laughs> Sounds like you're doing something right. If your five year goal is basically to keep things constant and or you know, a little bit better incremental improvement where you are, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Um, so, Dan, if people wanted to get in touch with you somehow or talk to you about Abacus or ha- possibly having you come in, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. So our, our website is, is abacus.com. That's A-B-A-K-A-S.com. I can be reached at, at dan at abacus.com by email uh, or contact us form on our website. Cool. Uh, so we'll put that information in the notes for the show and the blog post that we uh, release when we uh, send this out. So if you'd like to ask us a question and have us answer it on the air or possibly on our blog, you can reach us in a couple of different ways. One is to call us toll-free at 877-9-ROBOTS, extension 198, and just leave us a voicemail. Uh, you can also email your questions to info at thoughtbot.com or just tweet to us at, at thoughtbot. Uh, but thanks so much for coming in. It's been awesome talking to you. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, and uh, have a great weekend. All right, you too. Take care.